bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Iron Island Museum, located in Buffalo, New York. It's historic and haunted. And Monkey See, Monkey Do, a children's bookstore located in Clarence, New York. They're featuring the Western New York Children's Book Expo on Saturday, November 9th, 2019, from 10 to 3 p.m. at the Buffalo Niagara Convention Center. It's a free family event. You'll meet local, national, and international children's authors. And one more quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. There were few experienced swimmers among over 1,300 Lower East Side residents who boarded the General Slocum on June 15, 1904. It shouldn't have mattered since the steamship was charted only for a languid excursion from Manhattan to Long Island Sound. But a fire erupted minutes into the trip, forcing hundreds of terrified passengers into the water. By the time the captain found a safe shore for landing, 1,021 had perished. It was the worst disaster ever to occur in New York City until the terrorist attack on 9-11. In his book, Ship Ablaze, Edward T. O'Donnell draws on first-hand accounts to examine why the death toll was so high and how the city responded. And Edward T. O'Donnell is a professional historian, author, speaker, teacher, and podcaster. He earned his PhD in American history from Columbia University, and he's an associate professor of history at Holy Cross College. His specialty of research is 19th century U.S. urban, ethnic, and political history, in particular, the Irish-American experience. In fact, he wrote a book 
1,001 things everyone should know about the Irish American history. And uh, we're probably not going to go through all 1,001, but we may hit a couple. And good morning, Professor O'Donnell. Thank you for being on Talking Hard Island. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, after um, going through your bio and, and such and, and the focus that you have in general on the Irish experience, this particular story, uh, the fire on the General Slocum, um, is about a German church group, as mm -hmm. I understand it. Yep. Take us through why this story was of interest to you and also take us through what happened on that fateful day. Well, I first heard about the General Slocum story like a lot of people do. It's one of those um, trivia questions or things that sort of makes people quite surprised because when somebody says, as it happened to me in a class in uh, graduate school at the Columbia University, and somebody said, what's the biggest fire in New York City history? And of course, I thought I knew the answer, which was the you know, 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in which 146 people were killed. And the professor said, no, actually, one happened seven years earlier and was seven times as deadly. And you've probably never heard of it. It's the General Slocum Fire of 1904. So that piqued my interest. And then that's, a, that's one part of the, my interest. The other was that I, to get myself through graduate school, I started doing lots of historical walking tours, uh, particularly of the Lower East Side. And at a certain point, as we developed a East Village tour, you realize um, that the church that was the centerpiece of that story, the church that had the summer outing that uh, went so badly, uh, was right, is right there on, on 6th Street. So a number of things like that are brought together. And then I think also the time period when I started thinking about writing the book, right around 2000, it was clear that the public's appetite for really well-researched, well-written, non-fiction drama, if you want to call it that, um, was really surging. This is when Black Hawk Down uh, was on the bestseller list. Uh, the Perfect Storm was on the bestseller list. When Eric Larson had begun to write his series of spectacular, you know, dramatic nonfiction books, and that really got my interest, thinking maybe I should try my hand at it. And that's that's how I started doing the research. Right. Well, why haven't we heard of this story? Well, I think? I think the answer is that um, you know at the time it made global headlines. People in Europe uh, sent donations to the to the fund, and James Joyce in Ireland. Uh, read about it and included the, the story in his famous book, Ulysses, uh, you know, a story set in Dublin. So it was a global story, not just a national story, but it faded really quickly, probably because of that Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, uh, which was seven years later. It wasn't as deadly, but the context, as any good historian will tell you, is really what matters most. And the context of 1911 was this um, roiling labor capital dispute that had been happening, you know, all across the country, but especially in New York. Many thousands of garment workers going on strike and a lot of attention being paid to the terrible conditions in which they lived uh, and, and worked. And also the fact that these are mostly women who, uh, who were the victims of the fire. So when the fire occurs, it has this kind of larger context of strife and injustice uh, that magnified its impact and really made it a, not just a national story, but a story that had sort of significance about how we were going to regulate business and how we we're going to, or and would we, uh, pass labor legislation to make factories safer and cleaner and um, d do more things like that for working class people. So I think that that's one of the pieces of the puzzle that explains why the Slocum story just sort of began to, you know, got bumped uh, as the most memorable fire of the early 20th century. Right. You know, <clears throat> our podcast, the Talking Heart Island, 
explores basically the immigrant experience of uh, the 19th century New York City, which of course includes the Irish, which you know so well. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you can share some uh, uh, research on that with us. Also the uh, Jewish uh, immigration experience, Italians. But the Germans also uh, emigrated here because of situations that were going on in Europe. Did you do any research at all about about the German immigration uh, experience? Yeah, I had to because in order to fully understand what this community was, uh, I really had to dive into the literature and into the research. Um, and I didn't. I don't. My my skills at reading German are, are pretty poor, so I had to hire somebody to do some uh, who could read German and read some of the uh, the key documents for me and tell me what they were saying. But so much of this was also covered in the mainstream newspapers, of which there were kind of hard to believe in the 21st century that there were more than 20 daily English language newspapers in New York City. So it got just massive uh, coverage. But back to your original question about the Germans, the Germans were one of the largest uh, immigrant groups, the second largest group, second to the Irish in the mid 19th and later 19th century. And they formed like all these other immigrants groups did uh, their own neighborhood, uh, one called uh, Klein Deutschland or Little Germany down there in the Lower East Side, what we call the East Village, you know, mostly today. And, uh, and then they formed other neighborhoods too, up in Yorkville and then, you know, other pockets in Brooklyn and New Jersey. And they were just like any other immigrant group in the sense that they came, they tried to preserve their culture and language, but eventually uh, blended into the population and eventually dispersed to become a big part of uh, New York's overall very multi-ethnic uh, fabric. And so that dispersal was what was happening. The, what I track in the book is that starting in the 1880s, Germans are starting to leave that Lower East Side neighborhood for better neighborhoods, for better housing, better jobs, and so on. And so the little Germany is still there in 1904, but it's a fraction of its former self. And when the fire you know, strikes and kills over a thousand people, it's so devastating that people who were thinking about leaving uh, end up leaving much more soon. And the neighbor, you know, what's, what is a strong remnant of little Germany just disappears within just a matter of years. What, um, what propelled the uh, Germans to leave their homeland and, and come here in the first place? Oh, Were there the, the, certain political things going on or? Yes. I mean, Germany itself was a, you know, a, a country in formation. It's a series of, you know, I guess we'd call them principalities and so forth, Prussia and other parts. And so they had a lot of internal political uh, strife going on in terms of unifying the country. And then also it's a very uh, religiously diverse country. There are Catholics, there are Protestants and Jews. And so there's, and then within that, you know, so there's a lot of political and religious strife. And then you have what's happening everywhere, which is industrialization, which is incredibly uh, disruptive. It, you know, industrialization brings all kinds of wealth and new possibilities and new technology. But if you're a shoemaker in Germany in, in 1850, uh, or if you are a weaver in, in that same area or doing anything that's sort of those traditional uh, occupations, those things are rapidly disappearing and go, or at least they're moving into factories. So your livelihood is, is gone. And so a lot of people end up moving uh, to the United States just for better opportunities. And I think that's sort of explains the, the German experience. And they come uh, both in the case of Germans, they come both to big cities like Germany, like uh, New York City, but also out into the countryside. Uh, some of them are seeking to become farmers and they do out there in the Midwest. So take us back to that day, June 15th, 1904. It, on one hand, it kind of boggles the mind to think that over, well, 1,300 people from one church group 
decided to board this ship on this particular day. Take us through that day if you can. Right. So they had been doing this for years, um, an annual event sort of to celebrate the end of the school year uh, and the beginning of summer. And because they were a relatively poor church, they did this on the on a weekday. So they get a cheaper rate on renting the ferry boat or the steamboat. And so this has uh, become something that people really looked forward to. And as it turned out on June 15th, 1904, it was a spectacular day, you know, warm, blue sky. They really thought that they had hit the jackpot. And it was not only congregation members, but also friends and people in the neighborhood. It was a, in some ways a bit of a fundraiser. So there's probably a good chunk of people who were just neighborhood kids who weren't part of the church um, who, who came along on the journey. And because it was also during the week, that meant that it was a mostly an event for mothers and children and retired folk, so that it had a disproportionate number of, or a very small, much smaller number of men there, because most of these are working class people who are doing their jobs and running their uh, delicatessens and uh, you know their their small businesses. So that that skewed the victims towards lots of children and lots of uh, mothers and lots of elderly. Right. So they decided on that day to go on the ship and then everything was going well, obviously, until a certain point. What, what, yeah. what was the first sign that something was amiss? Well, it happens very quickly. Uh, they're only, they, they never leave the East River. So, I mean, they're literally minutes into their journey up the East River when people start smelling smoke and seeing smoke and they look for a deckhand. They fi eventually find one who, and this is one of the stories within the stories, that the boat had never had a fire drill or certainly hadn't had a fire drill in anybody's living memory. And so this guy goes, so he, no, they don't have any sense of like what you do if there's a fire down below. So this guy goes down to a, essentially a storage area towards the head of the ship and uh, opens it up and sees that there's a fire there. And when he opens that door, what seems to be a smoldering fire really kind of gets a burst of, of oxygen and starts to really engage. And he doesn't know how to put it out. He tries sort of half-heartedly, then leaves the door open and runs upstairs to try to find more help. And by leaving the door open, he creates, because it's a stairwell this essentially a giant chimney right in the middle of the forward section of the boat. And the flames just go roaring up the stairs, all three flights, and then in every every direction. And the boat itself is, I think somebody at one point said it was built like a bonfire. It was, you know, it's a wooden hulled ship. It's had many, many years of paint, uh, very flammable paint put on it. And the boat is also moving at about 15 knots. So, you know, it's and the fire is towards the, the bow of the ship. So it's the worst kind of you know, confluence of circumstances where the the flames are going to expand and then blow backwards towards the bulk of the passengers on on board the ship. And so, by the time they're you know off of uh, what we now call Roosevelt's Island, uh, the the boat is fully engaged and people are pouring over the sides, uh, just trying to get out of the uh, the way of the flames. It's a real terrible decision that so many people have to make, which is, you know, do you die by fire or do you die by drowning? Because almost nobody. On the boat knows how to swim. It seems to be the only the, the only the kids you only people you hear about swimming in the wake of the tragedy are like twelve year old boys who have learned how to swim on the East River. But most other people are heavily clothed. Uh, this is an era when even if you did go to the beach, you went with a full dress and a full you know wool suit and might roll up your your the cuffs of your pants or your uh, stockings uh, to date to bait, you know, wade into the water a little bit, but that's about it. So these are not swimming people. And that's what really magnifies the, um, the death toll. The, uh, every nautical disaster, if we can call, uh, the general Slocum fire uh, in that category, usually it's the captain 
who's found to be um, guilty of something. What, what happened to the captain in this case? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. The captain, just the year before, had been, he's an older man, Captain Van Shake, and he has been, you know, piloting ships for decades on the East River and in and around New York. And he was given an award for being essentially the safest captain around, uh, never having lost a life. Uh, you know, everybody has accidents, but uh, he had never lost a life in his many decades of service. And so he would seem to be the perfect person in this circumstance. But He's in the forward part of the ship. It's also up way high. So the fire is essentially below him and a little bit behind him. And so when he finally gets notified, uh, the boat is fully engaged. There's a big ball of fire pouring out of the port side of the ship and it's raging backwards. He has limited information about what exactly is happening. And so he's got a couple of choices he has to make right away. One strategy for boats in this circumstance is to uh, stop completely and maybe even turn the boat around. Uh, so that the fire will continue to burn, but it won't be fed by all that oxygen pouring over the ship because it's moving at 15 knots. Um, another is just to go left or go right, you know, go to the port, go to the starboard and and beach it or pull it up to a pier, just like get it to somewhere where people can climb off. And then there's a third option, which he thinks of, which is he says, you know, just a little bit up ahead, a couple miles up the river is a place called North Brother Island, not far from Hart Island. And mm-hmm. it, uh, he knows the waterways, he knows there's a beach there. So he's thinking, I can get that, I can you know, bring this boat in, swing it around, and essentially beach it in shallow water. And that way people can you know, get off. And furthermore, there's a hospital on this island where people might get immediate medical care. It turns out to be a terrible decision because with every you know, bit of forward progress that the ship makes, it's simply pouring oxygen on this fire and forcing it backwards you know, down the length of the ship to cowering uh, and ultimately jumping uh, passengers who don't have any, really any choice but to throw themselves into the water. Was was the captain ultimately uh, charged with anything about to be uh, uh, a miss? You know, doing something wrong. Yeah. So the captain in the aftermath is a huge investigation, and all kinds of fingers are pointed at various points about you know who the guy that inspected the ship, for example. Five weeks earlier, had given it a clean bill of health, which and uh, you know approved it for service for that summer. And in retrospect, it's very clear the ship was incredibly unsafe in so many different ways. And the captain was also pointed to uh, both for his decision to kind of make a, a you know a break for it uh, to go up the East River towards North Brother Island rather than simply docking the ship or making it come to a standstill. Uh, and also the fact, and this is the really the key thing, that he had never conducted. Uh, fire drills. And it is ultimately the captain's responsibility to, to uh, operate a safe ship. And so he, because his ship was manifestly unsafe, he was held liable, he was convicted, and he served time in prison. And he's the only one who did. He really becomes the, scape, the, the scapegoat for uh, the great tragedy because there were clearly other people, including the owners of the boat, that were uh, at fault and should have paid the price. At least that's what many people thought. Right. Well, you know, obviously, with uh, our uh, podcast, Talking Hard Island, we're, we're kind of all about not only Hard Island, but cemeteries, I guess, in general. Where did the victims of the General Slocum fire go? Where were they buried? Well, since this was a, a church community, they had, you know, like most church communities, eventually buy property or make arrangements with nearby cemeteries. So this was a Lutheran church, and they uh, had chosen a plot many years before a large area in Lutheran All Faith Cemetery, which is in Middle Village, Queens. And so that's where ultimately 
uh, almost all the victims. There were some people buried in private plots in, you know, Greenwood Cemetery and a few other places uh, based on family tradition or family arrangements, but most people were buried in that cemetery. And there were about 60 or so people who were found but were unidentifiable. They just were burned to death, uh, you know, beyond recognition, or they had been in the water submerged so long that they were, there was nothing to identify them. And this is obviously in the days before DNA or even medical records or dental records that could help identify people. So about 60 or so people are buried underneath a beautiful, very large monument uh, that's right there in the middle of the cemetery as well. So besides the un, uh, the unidentified being buried and, and there's a memorial to mark their spot, is there also a memorial for the rest of the victims of the fire? No, that's the, mo that's the memorial for the, um, well, I should say in the cemetery, that's the primary um, memorial for all the victims, but principally also for those, um, those unidentified ones. So it sits on top of where the unidentified are buried, but it's sort of to represent the whole larger uh, tragedy. There are other markers that were placed in different places. There's a, a fountain in Tompkins Square Park in, on the Lower East Side, essentially in the neighborhood where all these people came from. Um, that is, most people just walk by it. They don't really see what it represents. It's not very clear, but it's been beautifully restored. And it's principally there to recognize the hundreds of children who'd, who died in the fire. Um, and so, the, and then since over the decades, there have been plaques and things, you know, there's now several plaques in front of St. Mark's Church uh, or, or what was St. Mark's Church on East 6th Street. So there are some markers here and there, but uh, just the principal one is out there at the cemetery. Um, one final question on the uh, fire, uh, General Slocum disaster. Whatever happened to the church that the, uh, the group came from? Did the church survive? I mean, losing over a thousand members, you think that might have been the, the end of it all. Did, did you do any follow-up to see what happened? Yes, it was um, quite amazing, actually. You would have thought that given the fact that Little Germany was rapidly unwinding anyway, just because people are moving to other neighborhoods like Yorkville uptown, that the church, this would have been a big blow to the church. But the church continues on for 40 more years. And even more incredibly to my mind, the pastor of the church, Reverend George Haas, who lost his wife, his daughter, his sister, uh, and all of his hundreds and hundreds of his members of his congregation, he was also badly burned in the fire. It's quite heroic behavior on his part during the fire to save people. He, you would have thought he would have looked for the first opportunity to leave that neighborhood. And he was given, he was a very well-educated guy. He was given offers to teach at local or nearby um, Lutheran colleges and so forth. But he turned them all down and he stayed there for another 20 years uh, in the neighborhood as pastor of that church. But uh, by the 40s, the church is, is um, no longer, has you know tiny membership and they end up selling it to a Jewish congregation. So it's now in good New York City fashion uh, been repurposed now as a synagogue. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, in the, the two to three minutes we have left, by the way, we never have enough time to explore all these uh, events, but your major um, emphasis of study and research is on 19th century U.S. urban and ethnic political uh, history, and but the Irish American experience, now, we mm -hmm. don't have the time for 1,001 things everyone should know about Irish-American history, but can you tell us some things maybe we should know? Wow, that's a, that's a 
an interesting question. I, is, is, I guess I totally could, unfair. Yeah, being Irish <laughs> myself, I could also, if I want to engage in stereotypes, talk forever uh, about this topic. I mean, one of the things that's important to point out, which is um, we often over overlook this because the Irish are clearly one of the most successful immigrant groups ever to come to the United States. I think Irish Catholics are the second wealthiest group in America, second only to Jewish Americans. So there's tremendous, um, you know, story of success there. Not everybody, obviously. But we have to remind ourselves that when the Irish came, uh, they were absolutely despised and all kinds of efforts were made to effectively build a wall, you know, to keep out the Irish, to pass laws, to, or also to do things that would, you know, to, through violence, through political movements like the Know Nothings, to really make sure that the Irish um, stopped coming and that those who would come would turn around and, and head back to Ireland. They were despised for their religion, which if you read what people said about Catholicism in the 1840s and 50s and just switch Catholicism uh, and Islam, you would be stunned by how similar the, uh, the critique was of, of these people. They, they were seen as bringing crime and uh, bad habits like alcoholism and that they were also, once got into politics, that they were inherently corrupt and were destroying democracy. By the 1870s and 1880s, they're using American freedom and the opportunity to generate wealth to liberate Ireland, which means that they are funding terrorism and in Ireland against the, uh, the British and blowing up buildings and blowing up uh, police stations and so forth in the 1880s. All of it, you know, in kind of early, one of the earliest versions of this kind of use of explosives as a political tool. And that's the Irish. So the first, you know, immigrant terrorist problem America had were Irish Catholics, oddly enough. And so reminding ourselves of that fact is always important because our our great tradition of immigration is always accompanied by the other tradition of nativism and fear and denouncing the, the latest immigrant group. And then we just reboot it when another group comes along. Well, Professor O'Donnell, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge of this uh, incredible history and uh, sharing it with us on Talking Hard Island. Thank you very much. You are most welcome. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean. And we're Talking Heart Island.